Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 242. It's sometimes hard to imagine when I announce the number of the episode. I really never imagined I'd be still doing this program. But I would say that it's a tribute, above all, to the Rabbeim and to Chassidus itself, because we've been sharing... And that's the driving engine of this program is applying chassidus to life. And it's a tribute to each one of you, the listeners, the submitters of questions, the comments, the rebuttals, the feedback, the encouragement, the critique, the sources and materials you've shared with me, all together adds up to a enduring and relevant program that has enriched my life and I hope has enriched your life and hopefully will continue to enrich many lives with the fundamental and core relevant resonating teachings of Chassidus, applying it to personal life, to community life, to global situations and to everything on this planet and beyond. So from time to time it's important just to state that. I'm also stating it because we're now coming to the conclusion of the fifth season. We began Chavdala Tevis five years ago. So we're concluding now the fifth season. And we are also announcing formally and officially the fifth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. Last week was a softer launch, an announcement, but now it's an official announcement the first year after our first anniversary, we were thinking, what can we do to honor a year of programming? And this idea came up of doing an essay contest. I'm not just myself presenting and applying this to life, but actually challenging each one of you, challenging everyone with that task. Can you apply an idea of chassidus to a contemporary life issue or challenge? Anything that's connected to life today. And you've risen to the occasion. Literally thousands of essays were submitted over these past four years. And this contest has become a staple. And we hope it will only grow. And we want you to share it and ask you to share it with everyone. With, of course, the additional incentive even though writing chassidus alone and applying chassidus and immersing ourselves is enough reward, but the additional incentive of a $10,000 first prize, a $3,600 second prize, and a $1,000 third prize, with an additional prize which we launched and initiated last year because in order to get students, more students involved, and we saw how many students were involved, a special $500 prize that will only go to students. They're also eligible for the higher prizes, this one will only be for students up to age 21. The contest is both in English and in Hebrew. We have a whole Hebrew department, which we're looking to expand and grow in Israel. So you can write it in English or in Hebrew or in Yiddish if you like. And all the details can be found at MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. There you'll have all the rules, the guidelines, how to write an essay, including tips, including many other relevant and important details. So I formally invite you, 
I'm honored and excited and delighted to invite each one of you to write an essay. We have a good a good five, six weeks to do so. The deadline for these essays, submissions, is February 12th, Zion Oder Aleph. So we're not even at Rosh Shvat yet, so you have over six weeks. The official, the official launch of the contest is Chavdal Tevis, but this doesn't mean you can't begin working. You can even submit. And please follow those guidelines. I've seen in reading essays, excellent, excellent essays, and many of them simply could have won and gotten higher scores had they just added a few things like some sources, sometimes the opening statement. If you follow the guidelines and literally make sure like a checklist that you check off everything that it says there in the rules, that is the most likely chance to up your score and to create a winning essay. With the best essays, I've not always been the ones that the literally the best essay per se. They were the best in all the categories. Because you see, when you make a create a contest like this to have a level playing field, it's not a black and white. It's not a right and wrong answer. Essays have to be compared to each other. So this the best essay is the one that lives up is the best in each of those guidelines and categories that we outline in the rules, and that's exactly how they're judged. So don't underestimate that. See, when you're writing, you may not understand that other people are also writing and they're also looking at those guidelines. That's for us the only way to make it level. For example, we've had essays that were brilliant in its personal application. An essay, I remember a woman writing in Israel about her fear and trepidation for herself and her family when her husband went to the front lines in Gaza to fight in Gaza and how she used betochen and chassidus to help her alleviate and help deal with those fears. Excellent essay. It could have probably been a winning essay, but it was weak in its sources. And the essay contest requires there be sources. That there be doesn't have to be a thousand sources, but there be some grounded sources. She even wrote that in her essay. There were essays that are excellent in the sources, and they bring a very good mimer and they explain it well. There've been people, not mentioning names, who've written brilliant essays, and they are known to be excellent Hasidic exponents. And yet, that personal application was not quite as strong. Just as an example. So when you look through those guidelines, look at each one and try to maximize living up to the expectation, living up to the guideline, because that is a key component in scoring. This is a tip. That can be the difference between winning $10,000 and not winning it. And there'll be more that I'll share as we go along. I wanted to make the announcement as we go into the week of Chavdala Tevis, which is the yard site of the Alta Rebbe, exactly um, Tav Kufayin Gimel. So we have now Tav Reshayin Gimel, Tav Shinayin Gimel, worth 206 years ago. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah. The Alta Rebbe's yard site in Tav Kufayin Gimel, when the Alta Rebbe, the Metzoi, the Metzoi is Metzoi Shabbos, Metzoi Pasha Ve'era, Metzoi Shabbos Pasha Shmois on Sunday of Ve'era, as the Al Tzemach describes, Al Tzemach was nostalgic. Al Tzemach, the founder of Chabad Chassidus, and this week we are honoring that yard site, that Hilula, that Istalkus. It's also the Pasha of Ve'era, as I just mentioned. So we'll talk about that as we customarily do at the beginning of the program, after this announcement about the essay contest. I think I've given all the details that are relevant for right now.
Okay. With that said, let us go right into that. So what is Chavdal Tevis? Chavdal Tevis, as we know, Kfar Piena was a city. Al-Tarebbe was escaping from Napoleon, escaping from the war. And in his travels in Kfar Piena, that's where his neshama returned to its maker. Very sad. But at the same time, as we know, the Hilullah Vatsadik, as the Al-Tarebbe brings in the Geras HaKedosh, and the Rebbe always cites, and the Hilul of Atzadik, Yapel Yeshua's Bekerav Aretz. His strength, all the work that he did, and especially to his students and those that follow in his footsteps and follow his guidelines and his teachings, which is exactly what Chassidus is about. On that day, it comes to a, on the day of Chavdal Tevis, it comes to a particular unique place and transmits to us and affects Yeshua's salvations, even in the depths of this world. So we benefit directly from it. Thus, the importance of recognizing that in a program called Chassidus Applied, which wouldn't exist were it not for the Alter Rebbe. We all know the Alter Rebbe's name, Shneir Zalman. Shneir hints to the two airs, Shnei Oir, the air of Nigla the air of Primisatera, coming together. Alter Rebbe, the Machaber of the Shulchan Aruch, which is Nigla, the first air, the first light. The Shneir, the Primisatera, Tanya, and all the Mamorim that are printed in the and all the Mamorim of the Alter Rebbe, they come together and they transmit into Zalman. Zalman, as the Rebbe brings in Sichis, and it's also from the Rebbe's father, Levi Yitzchok, that Zalman is the letters Lizman. Reversing the letters, reordering the letters, it's Lizman. It's the Hamshach of Shneir taking the two great luminaries of Nigla and Primius of the outer and inner dimension of Teda, the body and soul of Teda, and transmitting it into time. And it also, of course, includes space. So it doesn't remain lofty and abstract, but it permeates time and space as we know it. And therefore we have, within our lives today, the chassidus, that the Alter Rebbe was miyaset Teda's chassidus Chabad, and then elucidated upon, elaborated upon, and further developed by the Rabbeim afterwards, the Mitla Rebbe, and that's the body of Chassidus that is so much the basis of what we speak about here. And that with that tribute, we actually honored Chavdal Tevis. That's when we began the essay contest. I should mention, a few weeks after we launched that essay contest five years ago, well, to be six, it's going to be the beginning of the sixth year, we, we received a note someone sent us to check out a letter Yudches Tevis Tovshin Tes Vov, the 18th of Tevis, and the Rebbe writes that he's suggesting students of a school, suggesting it to the faculty, that since Yud Shvar is coming, Yud Shvar, of course, is the Yemelula of the middle of the Friedrich Rebbe and the beginning of the Nesias of the Rebbe, he suggests that the students, especially the older ones, should write essays about the Aveda and the work of the Friedrich Rebbe. I then checked with my staff, I said, when was it that we first sent the first email about the idea? Yudches Tevis. The 18th of Tevis, 60 years to the day when the Rebbe wrote that letter. Then I called some of the faculties of different schools. Do they know about such a letter? Do they know about such a directive? Has anyone ever done it? No. There you have essay. The Rebbe is writing to write essays. A little early in the letter, the Rebbe speaks about the power of initiating, that students should initiate things, not just be on the receiving end and studying, and learning, but also to create programs and projects because then their passion is invested in it. 
So that lies at the heart of living chassidus. Living chassidus means, yes, you learn from the teacher, you learn from the discourse, from the maimer, but then you go ahead and you initiate and you internalize it and integrate it and present it from your perspective in a way that relates to your life and to other people's lives. That's the essence of Shneir Zalman Chovdala Tevis. The connection to Pasha Ve'era, the Rebbe speaks of Mitzvah Shabbos Shmeis, Pasha Ve'era, Shmeis, and Ve'era, of course, are not easy chapters. They're about Golos Mitzrayim. But the name of the chapter is Ve'era, Ve'era Elovis, Ve'era. God appeared. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I appeared to the forefathers. So the name itself is one of revelation. And revelation is obviously what the Alter Rebbe came to do. When did the Alter Rebbe come to reveal Teres Achsidah, Shnei light, in the depths of Golas, of darkness, yes, close to the end of Golas, because Achsidah is revealed in the Ikvas of the Mashiach, in the generations that are preparing this, the final steps before Mashiach comes, but it's in the darkness, which is why the two explanations given Explain the Chelik Tazvav Yitzkislav Sicha of the Rebbe Lakuta Sichas. The two reasons why Chassidus was revealed now, meaning in later generations: one, to counter the deeper darkness of Golis, and before the dawn you need greater light. And the second reason, as a taste, a foretaste, an appetizer, that erev Shabbos, the sixth day, the sixth millennium, preparing for the seventh from Megula, we taste from those foods, from those delicacies which is the delicacy of Terosh Hashem Mashiach. And they're both interdependent because you need the higher light, as I said, to pierce the darkness. Shneir, to pierce Lizman and penetrate this world. So the continuing Pasha says, Ve'er Elovis, Kel Shaddai. Kel Shaddai is a name, as God manifests Shaddai in a, in a more defined way. But to you, Shmi Avayah I did not reveal the Hashem Havaya. But to you, Mesha, I will reveal Shem Havaya. Why? Because you're now in the darker Golas and you need more light, you need more energy, you need more divine manifestation. So the darkness elicits greater light. The Alter Rebbe was that. And then, of course, when he went to prison, which was yet another concealment and darkness, what was he told by his masters and teachers, the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid? Because this was a question, it was a challenge to his way of teaching Siddhas. They said, not only should you continue when he asked the question, should he continue, but even more so. And as the Rebbe Rashab says, that the Ikri Vifutz Menesachachutz happened after when? After the darkness, after the Golas Mitznaim of the Alter Rebbe, Petersburg, as it was called, after the name Petersburg, where he sat in prison. And as the, as the Rebbe Rashab says, as difficult as it may be, it's like pressing the olive, and that produces oil. So the pressure of Golis in general, and particularly the prison, and the challenges that that, that presented, brought out the, the deepest oil. And oil, Shemen Zayezoch, oil, is Shemen Shebetere, is Primi Satere. And the more you press it, the more power you get out of it. This is the relevance to us, that as we face our many challenges in microcosm, our Mitzrayim, our Petersburg, our challenges, we learn from the Alter Rebbe, we learn from the Parsha, that on the contrary, you're given even more strength to deal with those challenges. And in a way, through those challenges, we elicit and gain new dimensions of revelation, new dimensions of power to reach greater, greater heights until we actually merit to the Gula Mitis Vashlema, which is the whole point of your Futsman Sechachutz, as Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, through spreading the wellsprings, 
the Geula will come, Mashiach will come. Okay. Some cross-references. Obviously, I've spoken in the past about Chavdala Tevis, 24th of Tevis and Parshas Va'era. So episodes 51, 52, 97, 147, 196. I feel a particular, I guess, I don't know the word is pride, but more than pride, I actually feel a certain complete picture when you cross-reference. That way you don't have to repeat things that were said. And it also creates more of a cohesive body because other episodes complement what I said here and this complements what I said there. And altogether it can turn into something that's a far more complete presentation on the topic. See these previous episodes, you simply go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And if you click on the video, the YouTube version of the video, YouTube has a feature called Timestamps. And we've actually indexed them all so you can go straight to the topic you're looking for without having to listen to the entire thing. I wouldn't mind if you do, but in case you're busy and you want to get straight to the point you're looking for, it's easy to do. Okay. With that, let us go to some questions. And these are the questions that keep coming in, and I encourage you to pose those questions. Those questions can be posted anonymously, confidentially, at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There you'll find a forum, you'll find... As I said, the, the previous episodes, you'll find the essays that have been written till now. So there you can post, and as I try to, I'm trying to address them in the order that they came in, except sometimes I'll bunch them together if it's of a similar topic or a follow-up to a previous episode. So here goes, and here's some questions. I know some of the questions I'm going to read today and address today were, uh, you were asked me, when will my question already be addressed? I sent it in two months ago, three months ago. I have no choice, but there are many questions. You can't do them all in one week. So I have to just go in some order. Just bear with me. We will address them the best of my ability in the, in the right time. So here's a question, and some of these questions have been addressed earlier, which I, again, will cross-reference when that's the case. Um, this question is titled, Sineas. What do you say to a teenage girl that refuses to accept norms of religious standards, otherwise accepting other mitzvahs like kosher, Shabbos, etc. If she thinks that it's gender discriminating or degrading to a female to cover up in order not to be objectified or looked at in a sexual way, what would you say if it was your daughter? Rephrased, what do you say to a teenage girl who refuses to accept Sneha's guidelines because they are degrading because it's degrading to cover up in order not to be objectified. Okay. So firstly, the topic of tzniyas I've addressed at length in previous episodes and is very relevant here. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But I want to first give you those cross-references. Episode 4, 97, 98, 110, 118, 171, 172, 204. Just from those many different references, you can imagine it's a topic that has been asked about and people talk about and very relevant to all of us. And that's why it's been discussed so many times and that's why I'm willing to continue discussing it, even though there may be some overlap. But the key thing to remember, that whenever addressing anyone, especially if it's your own daughter, someone close, or it's someone else, it's important to understand you don't always know what they really mean with their question and what's bothering them. They may just say, I don't like these laws. I don't like these guidelines. I don't like to be covered up. I don't like to be objectified. But there may be other factors as well. Because human beings are complex and human beings don't always tell you what exactly is bothering them. They may even not know themselves what's really bothering them. 
So when you address an issue like this, you have to look at short term, what can you say immediately? And really longer term, maybe this person has never really gotten an understanding of what Sneas is in the first place. Very often I find the way it's presented in schools or at homes is a very limited and I would frankly say primitive way that it's addressed. What is Tzinius? And that's why I referred to those previous episodes because that's where I elaborated. So here I'll just be as quick and, and, and sum it up. Tzinius is from the word modesty. You shall walk with modesty before your God. As a matter of fact, most people think Tzinius is about covering up something. It's actually dignity. And referring to the Kohanim, the priest that walked before God in the temple, walk with modesty. Tznius is not just about others looking at you. Tznius is even how you are privately in your own room. Even how you shower, even how you dress. Why? There's no one there. Because Tznius is dignity. Carrying yourself with dignity. You're creating the divine image. Male or female. Now the female feminine has particular beauty God blessed her with. That has attraction. But it's not the issue here now not to be attractive or to hide something or to feel it's ugly or covering that's a secondary element. You, why do you cover the Holy of Holies? Why do you cover certain parts of the body? You cover it because of the dignity of the human being, not because it's something to hide. You know, you, you, sometimes you cover up the dirt, the garbage. You put it under the carpet. Unfortunately, many people think that's what Sneas is. They think it's all about the objectification of the person, whether it's a woman or a man for that matter, and this is trying to protect does it have that also that added element that when you live in a world where people can be quite decadent and quite debased in many ways, and so of course it helps. But the root of it is the dignity you stand before God. And the dignity above all is pronounced when you're dealing with the most intimate parts of a human being. So if that was presented properly, I wonder whether this teenage girl would have the same issues. I don't know who it is, and I don't know the situation, and I'm not, I'm not going to speculate. But I wanted to point out that it has to be addressed in that context. It's not about, okay, if a person right now is in a situation they're not interested in dressing the sneezing or the guidelines that you feel they should, so it depends how old they are. I'm talking now short term. And not always you can control or, um, or, uh, or, or, or police the person. What are you going to do? Even if it's your own daughter or son. So that's why I say, in the short term, you have to always have a good relationship with whoever it is that you are dealing with, whether it's a son, a daughter, a relative, a brother, a sister, anyone. Loving relationship. Love goes a long way. If you are in a position where you're just criticizing, I don't like how you dress, and every time you see your child, you turn the other way, or they make, you, make, or they, you make it very clear to them you're not happy. What, what do you think is happening? You're creating a rift. You may be 100% right. But is that the way to solve the problem? And I would submit it's not. Now, if you're talking about somebody that's in the, a young age, you still have control. Okay, even that should be done in a pleasant way because you want that child to grow up with have good memories and not saying my parent controlled me, controlled me, and as soon as I'm able to, I'm out of here. And I can do whatever I want. Always has to be with love. But especially someone a little older. And if they have questions like this, why don't you talk about it? What is your answer about the objectification? The first answer is not about that. It's about dignity. It's about you. So a person may say, I want to dress any way I like to dress. That's how I express myself. So it's true. That's why you can't just say, no, I don't agree with you. That's why it's an education. 
That's why it's a longer-term thing. Let's discuss. People will dress as they see fit based on their perspective on life. And even if someone wants to dress in a way to be provocative because they want attention, what are you going to say? Why are you objectifying yourself? Some people, they may respond to that positively. Some will not say, I don't care. It works for me. So what's the real solution to really teach a higher standard? It's not just about dress. It's about how you carry yourself. It's about who you are in this world. When a person feels that self-respect and self-esteem, they automatically behave, not just dress, how they walk, how they talk, how they carry themselves, how they, how they present, how they project, is with elegance and with dignity. That's where you want to bring the person. But if you focus strictly on the clothing, you may end up cutting us in a battle. I, I want to dress this way, you want me to dress that way. That turns it into something that often can't be won anyway, and not really addressing the, top, the core issues. So that's how I would approach it, even if it was my own daughter. I would talk on the short term, whatever you can say, in a positive way. I would never dismiss or create a, a more tension than necessary. Then there is, I'm sorry, not that necessary, that there is already. I would try to eliminate it by always diffusing it with the love, with the kindness, because that's how you can get through to a person. But I would also, at some point, and maybe do this earlier to preempt it when the children are younger, not just always talk about it, but also be a living example of what dignity is. I know people have told me about sneers. They say, my mother or the women in my life, my adult women, you should see, look at them. I don't want to be like them. So therefore, I don't want to dress like them. So what is bothering them? Is it purely the clothing? No. They saw a person who felt very repressed, who felt very, who looked very dejected, looked always down, depressed. So the, so the daughter, whoever sees that, says, I don't want to be like that. And they associated the dress, the tzniyas, together with the mood and the attitude. So if you want to convey a message of uh, positivity, you have to also be a positive person. You see someone that's happy, that smiles, that beams, and they are tzniyasdik in dress and in behavior, rest assured that's going to have an impact, a positive one. Someone wants to be like that person. That's role modeling. You see the opposite. Someone's maybe dressed exactly according to the letter of the law, but you don't like their presence, you don't like their attitude, you feel bad around them, you bad vibes, you tell me what the conclusion will be. So there's the long, short road, and that is ultimately the road that really works best. Short term, you have to just work with what you have, try to be loving, and try to some way broaden the conversation into some bigger picture as I just described. Okay. Next question. These questions are not necessarily directly connected, but they came in this order, so here we are. What defines, what really defines a Chabad Labavitch Chassid? Okay, these questions are always the ones that I know no matter what you say, you can never win because some people have higher standards, some people have lower standards. I remember my father telling me once, the Rebbe, he told the Rebbe that the Algemeiner Journal, his, he was the publisher and founder of, and editor-in-chief, he said some people are telling him that the newspaper is not religious enough, not chassidish enough. And the Rebbe smiled and said, and I'm sure there's some people who will say it's too religious and too chassidish. And the Rebbe said, this is how it is, people. Now, obviously there are standards that are we consider deal-breakers, so to speak. These are standards set in stone by the Rabbeim. But standards are so arbitrary in many other ways because who decides what a standard is? Which family? Which individual? This is why I always try to stick to what it says in the sources, what we know or what we've heard. And, and the rest is what's called Rishus. There are many areas where the Rabbeim did not lay out 
particular guidelines. Or they, or there was more broader and with a certain latitude. So to answer this question, let me begin with episodes where I spoke about this. Again, 18 and 19, and episode 85. So let me read now the full question, and then we'll address it, try to complement what I said in the previous programs about this topic. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Firstly, I would like to thank you very much for all the work you put in to really help and answer everyone's questions and concerns. May you continue with your amazing work for many years to come. Looking around in many different Chabad communities around the world, there seems to be many people that grow up in Chabad families, go to Chabad schools, but as they hit the late teens or early 20s, you see them, and whether boy or girl, if they're a working person or so, it just seems like they are another firm person, like they are another firm person that does all that's right halacha-wise, but it's really hard to understand what defines them as Chabad. So they do chitas, big deal. Their house they grew up has a picture of the Rebbe, so what? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say big deal, my own comment on the chitas. It's a nice, it's a commitment, not everybody does it. I wish everyone did. But I understand your point. You're seeing it's more like a specific thing. Their house grew up in a picture, they, they, their house they grew up in has a picture of the Rebbe, so what? I'm not putting down people that do these things. I'm just trying to understand what makes someone Chabad. There's so many from single people that grow up, that grew up not far from them, who are friends with the so-called Chabad boys and girls. They respect the Rebbe and their Chabad friends for who they are, and where they were and where they were brought up. I know the Rebbe writes. I know the Rebbe writes somewhere that his chassid is someone who does what he does, what the Rebbe does, something like that, or who learns his Torah, the Rebbe's Torah. But there are so many so-called non-Chabad people who also do that. Please, if you can define what makes me more or less Chabad than my friends who learn some chassidus in their life and respect the Rebbe like I do and even think he's the holiest man, holiest man in the century. It's just a little confusing. Especially that by girls who are from, just like any other from girl in the world, dresses tzniyas, learns in school all the Torah subjects, davens, and wants to run a beautiful from home, it really seems to look the same by all girls. Maybe I can carry a from girl who's not, so to speak, a Chabad girl. Hope I was able to express the question right. Thank you. So in the episodes that I referred to before I read the question, I discussed this more at length, and I definitely refer you to that. I'm not going to go over that. I'll just try to sum up again and just address a few key points. It's a very good question because, just to amplify the question, Chabad Labavit did not come to, God forbid, add something that's not in the Torah. Everything was given at Sinai, including Chassidus. Everything in its generation, its time, it's revealed. Just like we learn about Teir Shabal Peh. Teir Bepirushin, no, the Teir was given with its explanation. And then in the generations that followed, it was revealed in each time until the time when Rabbi Yehuda Anossi documented and codified the Mishnah and then followed by the Gemara and so on. So Chabad Lubavitch did not come to add, God forbid, a new Torah. So then what does it make a difference? Well, what makes a difference, number one, is the Hashkof of Chabad is, teaches us what the essence of Judaism really is. The Friedrich Rebbe once told a delegation of German Orthodox rabbis <clears throat> when they asked him, what did Chassidus come to contribute when we are from Jews for many years, a very strong Jewish community in Germany for many years? What did, here we didn't have Chassidus. What did Chassidus come to add? 
When they asked the question, they were in a hotel lobby. Friedrich <clears throat> Rebbe pointed to the big marble beams, marble pillars in the hall, in the lobby. And he said, describe these marble pillars. And they described it. Powerful looking, exquisite. Then Friedrich Rebbe stood up from the sofa, went over to one of the pillars. They followed him, the group of rabbis. And he shined a light on one of the pillars. And he says, what do you see now? So they said, we see all the intricate engravings, the flowers, the designs. Why didn't you say that earlier? Because we stood from a distance. You only saw the big picture. You only saw from a distance the pillars. You didn't see the details. Friedrich Rebbe smiled and said, that's what Chassidus came to do. It didn't come to create new pillars. It came to illuminate the beauty, the intricate beauty and details, and the flowers that has always been Judaism. What did the Baal Shem Tov come to teach? Avis Yisrael, Simcha, Hashgacha Pratis, Divine Providence, everything is a lesson in your life. What all this was not known before, Avis Yisrael is a mitzvah in the Teda. But he shined the light and focusing that this is important and not just, it's important about how to do it, how to connect to each Jew. He preempted and saw what was coming, the new modern world. And the same with the Alter Rebbe, as he carried on, Chassidus Chabad. So Chassidus Chabad, on one end we say, there's a Chiddush, of course. But everything that a student comes to be Mechadish was given to Moshe at Sinai. So where's the Chiddush? Chiddush means it's new. Because the new is the new application. The new is the way it's the specific details. But the basis is all there in the original. We're not coming to add in that dimension. I know there's a longer introduction, but the point is, Chabad Lubavitch is not just a culture. It's not just a corporation. I would say it's none of that. It's a Teda movement. It's all Teda. And it's meant to be not a maflag, as the Alter ever said. He doesn't want it to be a party. He doesn't want it to be Chabad and the rest of the Jews. It's a Hashkofa Bachaim. It's a look at life, a perspective of life, a comprehensive blueprint of how to look at Judaism at a Jew, and at life, and the cosmic picture, the microcosmic picture, and to turn it into a blueprint for living the best you can, to being the best you can be, filling the purpose and mission for which you were sent to this world, as a Jew and as a human being, to make a dira betachtein. Can you find these ideas in other places? Of course you can. But when you see it all together, one big picture, it's a picture of it all. And we need it today. So Chabad Lubavitch is strictly not about pictures or about, um, um, uh, you mentioned, uh, different customs. That's, these are details. It's above all embracing and following and living by the guidelines and the directives of the Rabbeim. Are we here to decide who, who's doing that, who's not doing that? Just like we're not here to decide as a Jew who's doing what the right thing as a Jew or not. That's not our business to judge. But if you want the standard, that's the standard. Someone that lives by these directives and follows them and acts on them. And so when the Rebbe says the mission of this generation is to bring you to bring the Gula. And the generation is to be shluchim and shluchim is to go out in the world and conquer the world with Yiddishkeit. That's a directive. Someone doesn't do it? Listen, none of us are perfect. We're not here to judge again. But if you want the standards, the Rebbeim themselves laid it out. You have thousands and thousands of pages of the Rebbe laying out what he expects from us. Alabavitcher follows that. It's very straightforward.
Now, the fact that people go through all kinds of machinations to say, I don't do that, but I do this and I do that. You know, some of us are defensive. Some feel they're not maybe living it up, so they have find other ways that they think they're manifesting it. Spitz Chabad, or the different other expressions. But the bottom line, it's living by these directives, and they're very clear what these directives are. Whether there's a disagreement or there's an unclarity, lack of clarity, talk to your mentor, to your mashpia, discuss it with others, and you'll come to clarity. There's enough from the Rebbe. The Rebbe stated it in the first Maimra Basilagani. What is the mission of the day? We are the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation to bring Vishachanti Besechem as Moshe did in his time and being the Gula. Through spreading of Chassidus, through the spreading of Teda, through traveling all over the world and reaching every possible Jew and even non Jew, and so on and so forth. You do that, that defines Alabavich Chassid. Okay. Listening to secular music. Next question. Is it wrong to listen to and enjoy classical music? And here's the question. Is it wrong to listen and enjoy music of Mozart and other classical composers? I find that when I'm sad about my problems, this music gives me peace of mind that I don't get even from Chabad Nigunim. Please advise. Thanks. So this question we actually addressed almost directly in episodes 25, 33, and 34. So the reason I'm reading the question because it did come in, and there's nothing wrong with telling you that the answer is there. So all you have to do is press a few buttons and you'll get to that answer. Just short one, one short point about it. Music is a very powerful medium. It's the language of the soul. That's why it touches us so deeply. So just like we are careful what we allow into our homes, into our ears, into our nose, into our mouths, into our eyes, to all the gates, the gatekeepers, we have to be careful what we allow into our souls and hearts through our ears and music. Music can be very powerful and very powerful, effective. The composer some way invests his spirit into the music and that music then captures our spirit. So I discussed then the power of music and that's why the care that needs to be taken when listening to music. But I'm not going to go into the details and I know some of you will say, why don't you just answer it now? Go there. You do some work, I'll do some of the work and we'll meet halfway. We'll meet in the middle. Okay. Um, J-Screen. Are we obligated as parents Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I would like to first of all thank you for this amazing service. My family and I benefit greatly from your wise and well-balanced words. I would like to ask you about a topic I've only recently been exposed to, J-Screen. I came across someone who feels strongly about this topic, and I want to hear what Chassidish would suggest in this regard. This person is close to someone who, God forbid, had an unwell child. After the child was born, she learned that had she done extra genetic testing, this genetic illness may have been avoided. In her opinion, it's our duty as parents to make sure we test with J-Screen to see if we are matches and to proceed from there to ensure that we don't wind up in a situation where we regret not doing it earlier. I'm, thank God, happily married with healthy children and have a supportive and loving husband. This person was of the opinion that it is irresponsible as a parent to not do further testing. I'm not sure what the Chassidah's view would be before dating and marriage. My question is, my question, is it irresponsible as a parent to not further test in case your spouse and yourself are a, ma- are a match for a genetic condition that could possibly be avoided if known beforehand? 
We did do Dar Yasharim before we got married. For those that don't know, Dar Yasharim is a service. People marry for certain Tesaks and other illnesses that are um, to clear the path, so to speak, for a Shidduch. So we did do Dar Yasharim before we got married. This person continues to write. And we even did the extra panel of testing. However, there are apparently many more genetic illnesses which with the use of J-Screen can be avoided. The problem, the problem, sorry, the trouble is that with J-Screen, they tell you any chance you may have for any kind of genetic condition, even if the percentage isn't high, meaning they give you the knowledge of which illnesses you carry instead of telling you if you're a match or not. This can lead to emotional and mental conflicts within yourself and with your spouse. If you do come up as matching with your spouse, I don't know what the next step would be. It doesn't seem simple. It seems it can cause problems in Shalom Bayis and the mitzvah of Pru Uravu, having children. I would be very grateful if you can shed some light on whether it is a duty as a parent to make sure you do not match for these illnesses. I honestly don't want to go there and shake things up in my marriage, but at the same time I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing as a parent. Thank you very much, and may you and yours be blessed and continue inspiring and helping our generation if you can answer as early as possible, it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again. So I'm not sure if this is as early as possible, but it's, it is what it is. I have not seen directly from the Rebbe addressing this issue in this explicit way, but there is an approach that the Rebbe takes that we've spoke about in previous programs regarding sonogram, ultrasound, and other testing done, pregnancy tests done during pregnancy, I should say, tests during, done during pregnancy. So we can extrapolate from that regarding this as well. First of all, the Torah says, So an answer to any question has to include your doctor, and perhaps your mashpia as well. Your doctor, because your doctor is your medical expert, they know what's out there, they know what is doable, they also Hopefully, a good doctor has discretion to know when to do a test and when not to test. Because we all know to overdo it can also become troublesome, as you suggest, because then test is ain't the of Testing and testing and testing, you can drive yourself crazy. And every time you find something, then you can just be living in fear. This has nothing to do with marriage even. Imagine you go constantly for a test if you're hypochondriac or have other type of ultra-sensitivity and paranoia. You can drive yourself crazy with every detail every time you find out this because none of us are perfect. So the same thing with marriage, even though the consequences are further because of children and so on, there's a certain amount of intelligent testing, meaning what's available, like the, the Dor Yasharim, you see rabbis, doctors alike, ex- experts, mashpim, and all the Torah people and doctors all say it's a, a good idea, and it can prevent, yes, it can prevent a mismatch, of a couple's, and uh, thank God in most cases people match, but people are, uh, are free, are, are not carriers, two carriers, but did you want to know that and prevent the issue before you even get into dating. So that's a very good service. Now, if that testing includes other things that can check things out, by all means, but it has to be done not in an extreme way. You see, when you get into extremes, then you can literally drive yourself crazy and others crazy. So you need doctors involved in this discussion, you need rabbis, and you need mashpim. Now, um, if a new test comes up, I would apply that same approach. We don't have to look for new tests. If something's available, you can mention it to a doctor, you can mention it to the Dari Sharm people, whoever it is, 
Is this something that can be tested for? And if yes, yes. But the obsession is what I'm trying to avoid here. So my answer is, no, to say just irresponsible, unless you'd go through every type of test, I would never make such a statement. Is it irresponsible not to do any test? We have available testing today. Technologies that once didn't exist. So why not make use of them? And they are not ones that destroy every shidduch. If it was a test that nine, the 9%, uh, they find that there's possibility of some, the remote possibility, you wouldn't take an have shidduchim, and that would be a problem. But not because there wouldn't be shidduchim, but because we don't have to go to such remote possibility. There is a betochen in God, and there are also things you can't test for. So we have to remember there's also a matter of trust, a matter of taking a positive approach, trakud v'zangut. Do the testing, but don't obsess. That's the key thing that I would say. And don't have to go to extremes unless there's a do- medical reason, a doctor and a rabbi and a mishpia say that it's worth, that it's important to do. That's my answer. Another question. Different question. This is a question. Mothers or formula? Okay. Did the Rebbe say anything about natural versus bottle feeding a baby? Well, before I continue, I want to add just one more thing to the previous question. The word responsibility. Absolutely, parents are responsible for their children. They're responsible for shaduchim. And people who are going into marriage or dating are responsible. The point I want, I didn't use that word, but I want to add that term. Responsibility, the question is what entails responsibility? And responsibility entails doing what you can medically and health-wise. That's normal. That's expect, that is the standard. There's standard tests today and other things that we have available. But responsibility does not include going to the farthest lengths of extremes. Maybe, maybe, maybe some remote possibility. I just wanted to add that word into the picture. Now, back to this question. Did the Rebbe say anything about natural versus bottle feeding a baby? Here's the questioner. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I don't know if you spoke about this or not. I'm unable to cope with feeding my child naturally due to the many factors involved when the infant is relying completely on me. I therefore have chosen to bottle feed formula for my 13th and some of my other children. Is there anything the Rebbe or you can tell me about this choice? Am I completely wrong? Is there room for choosing this in today's fast-paced world and with the very nutritional formulas with excellent hashgachas available? My husband, seems to, my husband seems to feel that the natural way Hashem intended is the right approach and is ready to assist with whatever would be required, cleaning help, errands, babysitting, other kids, etc. Babysitting other kids. But at this stage, we're both unsure, and for me personally, I simply feel that it would take away too, that it would take away too much from my other children. Thank you. New and old mom. Okay, may you always be a new mom, young, vibrant, and a great mom to your children. I have not seen from the Rebbe addressing this, but I do invite anyone that may have something that they heard, a yechidus, private audience, or a settle, a note, or something that the Rebbe may have said about this, and I, and for the benefit of the public, I definitely would want to share that with anyone, with everyone here. So please share it with me if you do have something indeed. As far as the practical common sense approach that the Rebbe takes in matters like this, it all comes down to case by case. There's no mitzvah that you have to nurse your child naturally. Some people are not able to. Some people it's a matter of health. Some people just can't produce milk. Some people have other challenges. So there's no such mitzvah to make a must. 
if a person could and they're able and they're capable and they're willing and it does not disrupt entire life, that's one thing. But if it's disruptive or difficult or very difficult, to force yourself is not, it's not an need. It's not, it's not the approach. How do you determine? So here again, you're not always determined by yourself. It's good to talk to people like your husband, talk to a doctor, talk to perhaps a mashpia, someone that you trust, and review and give the reasons. And most likely, anyone with a little common sense is going to listen to them and say, there's no need to force or push yourself. Now, if it's completely laziness or some reason that you can get over and doesn't have any real deeper, there's nothing really behind it, just your own choice, then, okay, we can discuss it more. That also you want to still have someone do it willingly and not be forced. But there, at least you could say, why why not? Now, obviously, I'm out of my league here because I'm not neither a mother nor a person that nurses, nor in any that, that, that way. But I'm addressing it from what I understand would be the approach that the Rebbe would take, what Taylor would take, Chassidus would take to this matter. And again, if anybody has had more input or insight, please. I'm going to do a few follow-ups. I have a lot, a lot of follow-up. I don't know if we'll cover it all, but we'll cover some. Then the Chassidus question, then the essay. Say, okay. We'll start with a follow-up from episode 234, 236 and 237. Revealing one's past in Shaduchim. So most of the bulk of the ideas were discussed then. But here's one question that remained lingering, which I had not addressed, so let me address this follow-up. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm a bacher starting Shaduchim now. I've been glued to your My Life Applied episode since I started watching them. I've started them from episode one to catch... I've started from episode one to catch all your wisdom. I used to be addicted to internet addiction... Pornography, Baruch Hashem, I'm sober for months already and was so impressed how you were able to find in Chassidus the exact tools I've been using based on my therapist, Mashpia, and what the psychologists say. Am I obligated to tell my spouse date that I've had this problem in the past and that this is my greatest struggle? The reason I'm asking is because Dr. Tversky mentioned that one is obligated to say and that marriage is about honesty. Also, personally, my relationship with my therapist, Mashpia, is so much greater due to the fact that I was so honest with them about this issue and feel that if I'm open about this, the whole marriage will be so much more honest. What does Chassidus say about this? So I did address this issue back, the original topics back, I said episodes 234, 236, and 237. The, the main principle I made there, the main case, main point, was is it relevant is it going to affect your spouse or your date? Or your spouse, your marriage? If it does not affect your marriage in any way, then not everything that a person has happened in their past has to be shared. Not because there's a secret, because you could do your rock a boat, that's not necessary. You never know how another person is going to take it. So it's true, we have to weigh here, one side being honest and open, another, what's the benefit? Now if there's a benefit, that's one story. If it's going to affect marriage, obviously. But if there's no benefit, and it's not going to affect the marriage, and it may even disrupt things, you have to say to yourself, so every time you walk in the street and you have some uh, bad thought, every time something happens, that you don't act on even, you have to share the name of honesty, there are things we don't always share. We don't share every intimate detail of our lives about things, things that we do in our privacy. 
I'm talking about again things that are not significant or relevant to the marriage. So I will say these are the two sides of the argument. To tell you what to do, I think is case by case. But if you look at it, both sides of it, honesty, yes, MS, honesty is absolutely important. But not everything you say to a therapist, you have to say to your spouse. Not everything you say to your mashpia or to a friend or to a teacher, you have to say to your spouse. That's maybe why you have a mashpia. Because a marriage is a sacred marriage. And if you bring every piece of dirt into, dirt, whatever the word is, every piece of shame, every psychological thing, you could also put up undue pressure on your spouse. Do they have to serve as your therapist now? So that's why it's very important to weigh honesty and do you have a... Now, if you did not tell anyone and you're continuing, that's another story. But if you are, it's under control and you have therapists to talk to about it, should there be a recurrence or should there be a relapse or some thoughts that you may have, you have an outlet. That's why we have doctors. That's why we have mashpiyim. That's why we have therapists. And the same thing with your spouse. Not everything has to be shared in marriage. That does not necessarily, when you say honesty, doesn't mean everything has to be said. What you say has to be honest and truthful, but doesn't mean everything has to be put on the table, because that sometimes is the name of honesty. What you have is can create only complications. Again, this doesn't mean dishonesty. It just means, like the Friedrich Rebbe once told the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushke, that emes daf minishnal mozogin, but aligin termin kemlin You don't have to always say the truth, but a lie you're never supposed to say. What do you mean? Why not always say the truth? Because everything has to be done in its time. Make sure the right effect and what's going to be the result of it. That's my response to this. Regarding the Fitbit of last week, so there was a few comments. Someone said, can I get this in writing? Another person said yes. Another comment was, thank you, Rabbi Jacobs, for another great webcast. Your work is helping many more people than you know. Actually, this is a general comment on the whole program last week. Then someone said, say what? Why on earth would there be a Shiloh about a Fitbit in the first place? Why would there be a question? I guess you didn't listen to the program because that's exactly what I said. But nevertheless, since it was a question, let's address it and let's look at it, which is what I did last week. Now, okay. Another question, another follow-up is around government interference into Jewish education. So here was again several responses that we discussed about last week in episode 241. So if you want the full Topic addressed, listen to that, and this is a follow-up to that. Could you make public in writing what you said verbatim at the government meeting about interference with our Jewish Torah Chinuch? I mentioned that I spoke, there was an interview, or, or a visit from some of the, the Board of Education to Holotera and to other schools, so I was invited to share a few words. I shared some of what I've said. I don't have it in writing. I will put it in writing. I will definitely share it in response to your request. Another person writes, Klippa of Nilus. The Rebbe in the early years spoke about the Klippa of the Nile River. Klippa is, of course, the husks, the Klippa, the negative of the Nile River, where Pharaoh made a decree to throw all the male children into the Nile River. That in America, this is the Klippa of Parnassa, Tachlis. Making a living. That the only way to make a living is through secular higher education, or secular education. Where we want to throw our children into the river of making a living, and how that talk of the Rebbe applies to this situation of the government wanting to take over the education of our children so they will be able to make a living after they graduate. Yes, I addressed that and related it to previous episodes where I spoke about secular education. And I'm not going to repeat it, I'm just reading the comment. And finally, there was one more comment about inspector. I had read a letter where someone had said that the Rebbe told 
one of the faculty that if someone comes to intervene from the government, you should throw him out. So I had suggested, I don't know the Rebbe said throw him out, because perhaps it would be more cordial. It could, you could always, it could always be uh, pleasant about it and tell him not to mix into your business. So someone wrote to me, I need to correct you, but the Rebbe did tell Rabbi Machol, that's my Machol title, to actually scream at the inspector and send him away. I heard this from Rabbi Machol, and his testimony exists on video. Okay, I'm, I stand corrected that Rebbe said that to him. Uh, this still doesn't think, I don't think that means it's a Hiral and Abim, that everybody should go start yelling at all the government officials. Rabbi Machol was Rabbi Machol. Maybe the circumstance was such. And even yelling can also be done pleasantly. So I, I accept it, and I want to, for the record, state that. Okay. There were a few more follow-ups. Let me see which one I'm going to do now. There was one about, well, this one I'll do next week. Singing in the restroom. There's a story about the Alter Rebbe, this fellow writes. Who, there's a story about the Alter Rebbe who used, to be to, who used to be told stories of tzaddikim during his baths. Except that there was one particular tzaddik that he wouldn't allow to be mentioned in the bath. I, I apply this to the gunim as well. That maybe only very special ones should not be sung in showers, but not as a rule for all in the gunim. Okay, so that's a comment on what I spoke last week. It's an opinion. You can agree or disagree. I stand by what I said. I think this is a platform for all opinions, and it could very well be your right, and I'm not going to argue about it, because it's really a matter of, uh, I guess, uh, discretion and personal preference. So that's that. And one more we'll do. Social justice is injustice. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. This is, um, hi, Rabbi Jim. Thank you for your wonderful weekly video for Abrengans. They bring so much light and inspiration. In minute 12 of episode 241, you said, quote, so it's an attitude that actually allowed us, the, the, Jewish, people, to, the Jewish people, to collectively and individually forge and pioneer a new path that would not just be another conformist movement, but the one that would actually challenge the status quo. As Avram Avinu did in his time, challenge every form of paganism, every form of self-worship, and bring into the world charity, virtue, mishpat, justice, social justice, and in time would ultimately change the entire world, the world in which we live in today. End quote. Yep. From my understanding, the writer writes, from my understanding of Torah, social justice is the antithesis of Torah. Torah teaches us we should not take a person standing into account when judging him or her. Whether rich or poor, a person stands in front of a court and expects honesty and true justice. If a judge takes a person's social standing into account, he violates a biblical command. From what I can see, social justice is a way of destroying justice, not enhancing it. Was your adding the word of social justice a throwaway line, or did you actually mean that we should practice social justice? Should we act like Robin Hood and steal from the rich to feed the poor? Or should every person be judged as an individual? It seems that once we divide people by their ethnicity and financial status, we're acting like communism. An opposite of Torah, of Torah's values, and treating each individual person with respect, honesty, and justice he she deserves. Well, I actually did not mean to make a major statement by saying social justice. I meant social justice in the sense of justice in society, not with any particular meaning, so really does not apply. I didn't mean to make any statement in that nature. Um, what I will say is, however, that... Um, the Torah, however, says that you do give stuck to the poor, and you don't give it to the rich. Minas chasodim is lashirim, but stuck is tanim. You give to the poor. 
So there is a discretion when it comes to Meiser Oni and uh, Peya and Lekat Shikha and Peya. These are for people who are in need. As a matter of fact, a person who's not in need that takes has certain statements about that. So I'm not sure whether you can just make a blank white statement. Yes, but standing in judgment, we don't make a difference. And everybody's created in the divine image and no one is more or less. You probably mean things like um, um, what we find today, what they have is, uh, uh, I forgot the name for it, but where we bend over backwards to say since someone's less, instead of empowering them, we give them more benefits. That is a question by the Torah. There's been essays and articles written on this topic. But I appreciate your comment, and that's my response. The question, this question. Last week, I was very intrigued by your response to whether the Nesava, the desire of God to have a home in the lowest of worlds, is rooted in Atzmus. And you, in passing, mentioned that Atzmus is beyond any type of definition and structure and, uh, and system. And you mentioned Mechuyivah Metzius, Metziusim Atzmusi, and Bilti Metzius Nimtza. Can you please explain the different ways we describe, quote-unquote, Atzmus? Okay. Excellent question. I'm glad you asked it. <clears throat> because in general, when we say the word Atzmus, and as I described, as discussed in previous episodes, I don't have the reference right here, the Rebbe Rashab and Teir Shalom says that when we speak Atzmus, we don't really mean Atzmus, because we can't even utter the word Atzmus and really mean what it really is. Because it's beyond words, it's beyond, beyond words, beyond any negation, shlil, sashlil, and so on. And yet you see chassidus, especially in the Rebbe's chassidus and sikhs, the word Atzmus is used. And in context, Atzmus and Giluyim. Atzmus meaning Atzmusei, Muhusei is Baruch. You find it in Tanya, Muhusei v'Atzmusei is Baruch, or Atzmus Muhusei is Baruch. And then there's the Eir Einsof that, that comes from Atzmus. And with the different explanations in Maimorim, and I'm specifically referring to the Maimorim of Shavuos, Tafri Samaches, Samach Vav, and Ayin Beis, in Tafshin Zayin, the, the, the Rosh Hashanah, especially the Pesach Maimorim, and so on, you talk about, they talk about what Atzmus is. Because since the Ebesh Ta'ata Ladas, you revealed yourself that we should know you, as the Alter Rebbe says, do Atzmus Ein Sof HaSuch Megalegimen, so Bavizin Tzuns, Atzmus Ein Sof. So God gave us a little taste, so to speak, a little description. Even though we say, less Machshavet Tvisa Beiklal, no thought can cast grasp from Le Machshavese Machshavese Echem. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It's completely beyond anything. But even the beyond can be spoken about in language. We say We use words the best to our ability to be able to grasp something. In the Memorium of Tavshin Zion that I referred to, the Friedrich Rebbe speaks about and elaborates from previous Memorium about so-called, I don't like to use the personality, the nature are all not correct words. But when we talk about Atzmus, three expressions. One is Mechuyiv HaMetzius, he must be. Everything else is of Shari HaMetzius. It's possible to be. And then God chooses it, it's existent. Atzmus is Mechuyiv HaMetzius. A second expression, Metziusim Atzmusei. This is taken from Ageres, the cage of Simen Chof. Mechuyiv HaMetzius, by the way, is from different Sifrech Kira and Ikrim, Meir Nevuchim, Metzius the Hechlet. There's different terms for it. 
Mitzusei means a Mitzias that's not due to any cause, Mitzusei. His Mitzias comes from within himself. In the Geras HaKedosh he says that, that's connected actually, it was written close to the time of the Estalkus of Yechov Dal Tevis, that everything in existence has a Yeshle Ile Vesiba, has a cause and a, and, a, and a reason. Except the Yesh Hanivra is Margus, does not feel that we have any cause. Where does that come from? That we don't feel the Ile Siba is Ile Ile Vesiba Cheres. That we don't feel something brought us here. We know that something brought us here, but we don't feel it. So it says that's rooted in Atzmusu's Mitzvus and Atzmusay She'ein la'il v'siba cheres chaz v'sholom she'kodmaleh. So that's like saying he is his own cause. And the third expression is Mitzvus built the Mitzvus nimtza, which means an existent, non-existential existence. You can't say he exists. You can't say he doesn't exist. So you say he doesn't not exist the way we consider existence. I I recall. A letter, a note from the Rebbe, when it was written, I think maybe in explaining a piece in Tanya, and the Rebbe said that the writer who was explaining it mixed all these three things together and the three separate things all together. They all relate to each other; they're all interdependent. So I explained the first one was existence that must be, nothing that exists must be. The second thing is that the existence comes from himself. It's not necessarily the word must be; it means he is reality, and reality is the source of reality. And then finally, Mitzvah built the Mitzvah's Nimsa, maybe is the closest to describing the non-descriptive element of Atmos is he's an existence that's unlike anything we know that exists. She doesn't exist by definition, ah, like the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe says, Faran and Kite, Faran, here it is. This table is here. I'm sitting here. Atmos, you can't say he's here. You can't say he's not here. So you say he's not, not here. Which means... He exists in a way that we cannot in any way relate to. Everything else, even Eirein Sof in the highest levels, has a Mitzvah Nimtza. It is what it is in its state. Here is something that is, but it's not in the same time, at the same time, and there's no way you can define it. So that's itself is something to contemplate upon through a process of elimination that we can come to understand something that's completely different than we are. Interestingly, the Friedrich Rebbe, just like Mitzvah and Matzmusa, we have a taste of because we feel we don't have a source. Friedrich Rebbe says also Mitzvah is built in Mitzvah Nimtza, is we have a taste of. Because when we think about our existence, we realize it's a completely negligible existence. Is this really existence? Do we really exist? We have no value of our own. That's a taste of God's so-called non-existential existence. That's the brief story of it. I would love to read from Teter Shalom a line. I'll try to do that next week where a very abstract line where he describes this non-existential nature, that he is and he's not, and he's not what he is, and he's not not, and so on. Okay. How do you apply all this? We apply all this to come to the conclusion that everything we know about existence, everything we know about ourselves, that's not worship. Because there's realities that are completely beyond us. And that's what we want to connect to. That creates the utter bittle, the utter selflessness and suspension of self, not to worship our idols, not to worship ourselves, not to worship the structures and the existential states of all of existence. That's what this comes to teach us. So it elevates us to another place to help us also realize that when things happen in our lives, no, it's Mitzvah, Mitzvah Nimtza. There's a whole built-in Mitzvah Nimtza reality, which is real reality that we want to connect to. So how significant can this already be, even if it's so important to us at that given moment? So it opens up our horizons, our vistas, to have a far more broader vision than a myopic one of the here and now 
and the narrowness that so often we get trapped in. Let's do the three essays now. So these are some of the last essays that we'll be doing before, well, we'll continue doing these essays until the new winners, so that's a while. So I shouldn't say the last, there's still more to come. But they keep on coming, and I continue to really be amazed. I've never read all the essays. I do a lot of them reading when I do this program, as I review them each week. And I really, how can I say, it's, it's, it's overwhelming to see the effort, to see the relevance, to see such angles. So much to think about, stimulating. And I commend every essayist. And of course, now we have opportunity for yet another round this year, as I mentioned at the opening of the program. So here are essays from the 2018 contest, last year's contest, last year Chavdal Tevis launched. First one is called Seeking Comfort by Simi Sabag, age 24, Brooklyn, New York, teaches a teacher. Okay. It's happening more and more often these days that I look around and find that the people whom I had relied on in hard times are nowhere to be found. An empty ache in my chest is making me aware that I feel alone. I'm coming to a stark realization that in my present time of need, I will have to be my own comfort. How can I be my own source of inspiration when I myself need the encouragement? Is there a way to reassure myself when I'm so forlorn? Will I forever be confined to needing the support of others who often do not want to provide it? I feel helpless. This is a letter written in language to a rabbi, by a helpless but searching soul. And this essay is presented as a response to this letter. Dear HBSS, which is helpless but her searching soul, the quandary of which you speak is not a surprising one. As we tackle life head on, it can get rough and tiring. In those bumpy times, it's easy to fall into fall deep into a pit of despair. Access to self-inspiration has been provided by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in his masterwork of the Tanya Gerasa Kedish, Epistle 11, and continues on to explain that there he lends tremendous insight into the role that challenges play in our lives. I'll also reference the Freudian theory and the contemporary belief of self-worth, self-acceptance and validation for contrast the methodology of addressing the topic of helping, helping yourself out of a rut. And goes on to explain Freudian theory, contemporary psychological views, Companionship, the bigger picture, perpetual creation, proprietor of problems, good God. A very fundamental and comprehensive and very, very powerful essay. With a very strong conclusion of different Hasidic concepts and how they can be applied to dealing with these challenges as set out in the opening of this essay. Yes, very good essay. I recommend reading it. It's at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife and go to the essays of 2018 and you'll see all the new essays that I'm reviewing are posted as we speak. And you can also access them by subscribing to our weekly newsletter where we post all the new uploaded essays. The next one is Why Men Should Not Date. Yisrael Nu, age 29, Jerusalem, Israel, teacher. The layout of this essay is simple. First, I will concisely present the issue I wish to address. Next, I will loosely translate a mimer from the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, excuse me, and following each segment, suggest an application. To conclude, I will extract from the material a focused approach to address the issue presented. We are currently in the midst of a major marital crisis. 
not exclusive to the Orthodox and even Jewish communities. So he goes on to address this crisis and take Nechsidis, how we go from solitude to union using the Maimorim that he mentioned, Maimor from the, from the Rebbe Rashab, and continues on to explain each Maimor and its application. Again, excellent essay, a really good essay. I want to really go, go back and see the scores of these essays. They are definitely up there from the top. And um, well worth read as well. With a conclusion called ACT, an acronym for Accelerate, Concentrate, Tolerate in the, in the, in the dating and marriage process. Well resourced. Yes, I commend you for that. And finally, essay number three in Hebrew, Singing in My Home, Zmiriz Bebeis Magurai, Sholem Magidman, age 25, Israel. Basically, the ability to sing in times when you're down. Who doesn't have down times? And he talks about this whole idea of really finding happiness. How you find happiness even in a difficult life. Using chassidus, using the different ways of understanding mitzvahs, and how we connect to God, and that allows us to rise up above all these challenges. And yes, it's through song and happiness that makes it work. Again, a very solid essay, good sources. And with that, we conclude the essays of this week. And we also conclude this, My Life, Exodus Applied, episode 242. It's been an honor. Everyone should have a very blessed Chavdala Tevis, very blessed week. A week where we join Shnei'er, Nigla and Primius, into one fusion of bringing light to the time and space of this world, the Zman, giving the Alter Rebbe Nachas and all the Rabbeim. And may our efforts in teaching Chassidus, in applying Chassidus, in writing essays that apply Chassidus, bear fruit in its effect, and ultimately in the Gula Amitiz Vashlem. My life Chassidus applied is every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. It's been an honor and pleasure. And until next Sunday, everyone be blessed. Thank you so much.